Sunday were so very, very close. Um, but still, we, we made a huge distinction between them. Mm. Uh, the two roles, sorry. The, the two uh, original roles were data scientists and ML engineer. Mm. And it was really, uh, as I said, uh, and data scientists. How would you describe the differences? Though, yeah, the today, today I say the difference is uh, between the um, uh, drive of the person, mm. what they want to do. Mm-hmm. where their interest lies uh, rather than the actual competence. Uh, because we require uh, senior profiles to essentially be able to do both. Uh, they marry at the top, mm-hmm. but it's more what is it that you want to invest your most time into? Are you more thinking about the the value generation from the, the model? Mm-hmm. Or are you more thinking about how to serve this and scale this across yes. the organization? Mm-hmm. Um, then the engineering, uh, area has, has really, um, grown tremendously and we have not followed after with the, um, with the data scientists, um, role going into details of like, are you a deep learning specialist? Are you a recommendation engine specialist or anything like that? But the, the, the basic distinction is, are you more focused on getting the right uh, and validating the right model, so to speak? Yes. Or you're more focused on how you deploy and service a model and scale it? Yes, exactly. It's, it's scaling versus model performance. Mm. <laughs> okay. I think also it, it could add more part or some more nuances to it. To it. Yes. And, and one is simply that you need someone that is very, you know, well versed into the theory of how something works, but you also need someone that's really well, you know, very knowledgeable in the engineering skill of simply, simply building a large system that have all these components together. Yeah. Mm. And that, you know, scaling and, and deploying is one part, but that's only one part I would argue mm. of actually building a system that can truly, you know, put the model in use and integrate that into some system that you want to use. Mm-hmm. And, and that requires so much, you know, engineering skills that the data scientists would have no clue, or at least some of them, no, if you're not in, in a more senior role at least, mm-hmm. uh, but they need uh, ML engineers, data engineers, mm-hmm. etc., to be able to actually put that in use in some system. And actually, uh, it requires knowledge that is even greater than what we have in the AI foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have multiple, we have 10 different tech moves uh, that all drive towards this digitalization journey that we have. And one of these tech moves is, is just focusing on real-time APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one is focusing on how do we deploy uh, systems to our um, front end. Right. Uh, and another one is... So now you're actually moving out of the AI foundation function, yeah. but, it's, but it's very important for the whole ecosystem, so to speak. Exactly. For the, the entire journey yeah, that for the H&M is, is on, yeah. definitely. So it is, it is huge and it's uh, impossible that one profile will be able to solve all of but, that, unfortunately. And I think, you know, so many people focus far too much on, on the model it, itself. Yeah. And we heard, you know, Andrew Ng and Tetra yeah. speaking about the model-centric versus data-centric yes. kind of thinking. And I think it's more than the data-centric. Data, of course, should be really, you know, in high focus, but also the actual software engineering aspects in general should be in focus. Also yes. the, you know, how do you have a proper like data source, data management on that? How, how do you have the back, proper back? and uh, backend engineering and front-end engineering on that how do you have the proper like infra engineering on that i mean all of these are super cool stuff that you know they develop new 
technologies for, uh, you know, day by day, just as much as they do in, in ML and AI, I would argue. Exactly. And so this is where everything needs to be a culture, as I see it. The entire organization needs to be behind one common purpose. Mm -hmm. And no matter what kind of profile you have, everyone needs to see the greater purpose of how they contribute. Yeah. yeah. Now, let, let me even argue that even now here we have a, a quite high level of sophistication on, on, on these topics now. Mm -hmm. And we're actually talking about this from perspective, you know, what could be Spotify or, you know, quite mm -hmm. hardcore, you know, um, poster child of this one. H&M has done a, a, one of the most intense investments and efforts focused in Sweden, I would argue, or in, in Northern Europe in, in, you know, taking an analog business fully hardcore digital at scale, right? Yes. So if I take a step back now, this is a theory I want to test with you guys. Mm -hmm. I can really see the, a trajectory. If I try to remember back, wh where are we coming from in 2010, 11, 12? Mm -hmm. And I see two, two kind of different path on how we got to data science. Mm -hmm. I see the one path I saw where, which many are on and still are on today, I argue, they start with some sort of idea around the analytical ladder. So they are, we are talking BI and reporting and we're moving to advanced analytics. Yes. But in my opinion, then when you, when you scrape the surface of this, and this is highly sophisticated people, a very clear role in itself, but their, their job now as a data scientist is more about serving an insight or, you know, wrangling and doing all the modeling and then coming up with an insight to maybe an ad hoc problem or a big question, but it sort of starts, it's an advanced analytics framing of the topic. And this is sort of then, you have the data scientists that's sort of moving from, from statistics and advanced analytics and prescriptive, you know, predictive analysis, whatever. And then I see uh, the other train, which is more software development uh, trajectory. We are, we have been building microservices. We are building like this and we have a more and more increased sophistication of our microservices where we all of a sudden I want to have algorithms in production. Yeah as a mindset already from the start. I mean, like, I mean, it's the difference of using, you know, um, AI for BI purposes or for a product purpose or yes. for a finance purpose or for a sales purpose or whatever. Yeah. I mean, a marketing purpose, you can use AI for so much more. Yes. And I think a lot of people There's and companies are focusing so much on the BI purpose. Yes. So, and this is yeah. my main, I mean, like in Paltarion, you were pushing the, the lingo around operational AI. Yes. So I, I think that could be one way to guide people in how to think about that because we're coming from a business intelligence trajectory, looking at the past and how we, we want to be forward looking, we do scenario and somewhere here we have predictions and then we can have machine learning type algorithms to support us with BI forward looking. Mm -hmm. But that's a different ballgame, I argue, than coming from the operational view that I'm going to build a recommender system or I'm going to have mm. algorithms as part of my platform mm. product mm. Or, or app, so to speak. I think, uh, for me at least, uh, looking at H&M from the inside, I think uh, one of the reasons why many people end up in, in sort of using AI or data science or whatever for BI is mostly because it's so extremely costly to do this properly uh, for real production systems. Uh, I mean, we, we need to invest so much money in just uh, changing the website, mm. in tracking all of our goods through our supply chains, working with our suppliers to, to provide us with the data that we need in order to do this. So I think that that's where people don't understand uh, the the 
the jump that you need to go yes. from predictive to prescriptive uh, yeah, analytics. And the jump you need to do in your infrastructure to serve BI yeah. purpose yeah. versus serving an operational yeah, exactly. Real time, you know, taking algorithms into your hardcore, you know, planning. But, but phrase it properly now. I think it's dangerous if you if you say it's so much easier to use AI for BI purposes than it is for a product purpose. I think sometimes it can be easier for a product purpose to use AI as well. And you certainly don't need to do the full analytical ladder, right? Okay. Before yeah, you can start uh, using AI so for let's, other let's, purposes. So let's be very, very sharp now. So from a BI purpose, it, it can seem easier because whatever you're doing is ending up in insights and the whole deploying the insight in production piece is not as sophisticated. However, what is more complicated sometimes when you do BI is all of a sudden you need to have the contextual awareness. So you need to have much more data or many different angles and you need to validate for many different purposes. And what your argument now, you know, if I can make a, I can put the camera on, on my on my production line and that camera has one purpose and is very narrow in terms of detecting yeah. something that is wrong. And you and don't need an analytical ladder to no. start doing that. And you don't need to build a data warehouse, you don't need yes. to build anything. You need to build a data pipeline, a training data set, yes. and you need to build the, you know, you, you need to ingest the, the sensor data. And then, then you need to deploy whatever insights or signal into into production, yeah, right? Exactly. So, so basically, Depending on what we are talking about, we're getting into different types of challenges. So, and I think and this I think is it's an important a very point common here. misconception that a yep. lot of companies have. But I think, yes, of course, it's good to use it for BI purposes. Of course, they should. Yeah. But don't wait with other purposes. That's I think the yeah, main but, message. But but if you think carefully now, I think this is one of the challenges, right? Because if you want to get into production type of topics, then you need to look at the use case with completely different eyes, yes. going down to the production line, mm. you know, or going to the planning office doing the planning and really solve their operational daily problems. Yeah, I, I would agree with, uh, I mean, uh, the, the way that we're recommending we develop use cases is really that you start with a proper data understanding. Mm. Now you can you can push in data into sort of a, a, an auto ML type of model and, and see what you get. But that's also where, where the um, data centric AI uh, approach uh, becomes really valuable. Uh, I mean, thinking about uh, what kind of features you actually use uh, will have an impact on on the performance. What does a zero in your data actually mean? Is it an incorrect data point or is it something else? Mm. And learning that, uh, telling your, your AML to learn that is, is sometimes, it requires more data. Uh, there is this famous uh, article from 2015 from Google called the Hidden Technical Depth of Machine Learning. Yes, exactly. Uh, and they have this very infamous or famous picture showing yeah. that the modeling part is in the center of something, <laughs> but they have all the supporting systems around it that comprise of like 95% of the true system. Yeah. I think it's still very telling and something that I hope more people understood, you know, the purpose of. Do you agree with that? Or how would you, how important or how big of an like work effort would you say the modeling part is compared to the rest of, of the systems? Depends on the maturity of the ecosystem, I would say, mm -hmm. because I think uh, we've been using that actually as a sort of, uh, if you if you change it around, if, if you invest in a really good serving infrastructure, right. then all you need to do is actually deploy a, a Docker image or something like that of your code. And then it's like 100% of the code is... Um, are, are we at that point? Even if you use the latest type of, type of uh, you know cloud service provider and, and uh, 
can you simply build a Docker in image and then it's everything is working? No, but it's the holy grail, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> At some point, I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. So, but but it does uh, the the amount of code that goes into a traditional sort of uh, product would depend on sort of the serving infrastructure that you have around. Um, but it, it's a really good point. Uh, the the code for the modeling is typically very small in in all of our use cases. But if I try to wrap up this uh, nice conversation and, and so we can move into a proper introduction for you, Gunn. I mean, like we started off with the maturity of how roles have evolved and understanding more clarity in order to cover the whole ecosystem in production. And of course, then this ecosystem in production, what is that? As on the one angle, what you need in order to drive a BI type use case and slightly different things you need to worry about. Sometimes simpler, sometimes harder when you put operational AI in production. Uh, you know, is that a fair summary that the roles have evolved as we better and better understand these things, how they work? I think also as as an organization grows, right? Uh, yeah. the, the the bigger the organization grows, the the more flexibility you have to bring in uh, different roles. Yeah. Um, definitely. I will park that question because I want to have a conversation lately on how to think in the beginning you know, when you're starting up a new team versus how you think one, two, three years down the track, you know, do you have as many detailed roles in the beginning or do you, you know, but let's park that mm -hmm. question because yeah. I think there's a journey topic here. It's a rabbit hole for sure. Yeah. It's a rabbit Definitely. hole. But now I, I, I want to do two things. Uh, I want to, we, we are right about to uh, introduce you properly now, Bjorn. But before that, I would like to hand over the, uh, the sound mm -hmm. to Goran, because we will introduce our sponsor for this episode. Yes, so we have um, a sponsor for this episode. So this episode has been sponsored by IBM. IBM helps you implement your AI strategy and trustworthy, trustworthy AI. According to IBM, trustworthy AI has three ethical principles. At its core, uh, the first, the purpose of AI is to augment uh, human intelligence. Uh, second, the data and insights belong to the creator and not IBM. And third, uh, that the new technology and AI system must be transparent and explainable. If you want to learn more about IBM's uh, principle for implementing trustworthy AI, uh, go to www.ibm.com slash Watson slash trustworthy dash AI and uh, learn more about it. So that is it all from our sponsor. I think we should continue on those three points though. I think uh, they're really good, but, but we could do that later perhaps. So pick up, have you picked up on the, yes. on the key points? So then we yes. can integrate our sponsorship message oh. into our conversation. Yes. I think that is very nice. But now with, without further ado, I want to introduce you properly, Bjorn Hatchberg. And I'm, we are very, very excited to have you here. And uh, yeah, uh, I think we, we do, we basically start with the existential question first. <laughs> who am I? <laughs> who, who is Bjorn Hatchberg? How would you sort of uh, introduce yourself? Good question. I'm a 40-something um, uh, old guy uh, working in Stockholm. Um, uh, love data, uh, love uh, math, love everything that creates value out of the data. Uh, I sort of live in the intersection between uh, computers, uh, data, and uh, business value, as I see it. Um, and um, yeah, that's me. That's you. And 
I, it's always fun, or I think it's very lear- a learning curve in understanding a little bit about uh, what is shaping someone's views based on their experiences and their career or, you know, shaping moments. So could you take us a little bit uh, through the, the, the major steps of, of your career and maybe some, some shaping moments, you know, how did you get onto the path of data and all that even from the beginning? Uh, the path of data started probably before, uh, I started, uh, working, um, probably the, the first experience that I have is my father coming back home with, with a very old computer, um, and starting to, uh, uh, code on it, uh, it 286, 286, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you love those. Yeah. I actually sat in an interview and, and, uh, at, uh, JP Morgan and, and, uh, talked about who had, uh, experience of the, the earliest DOS version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the claim of fame, right? Exactly. And you got to one point zero two. Yeah, exactly. I read it internally. So. Yeah, exactly. One point, uh, zero two. It was, uh, actually a friend of the family that was working at Ericsson that was able to uh, get a very, very old uh, DOS version uh, just to make the, cool. the computer work. Is that MS-DOS or was it some other? Yeah, yeah it was MS-DOS. Oh. MS-DOS. Bill Gates. You know. Bill Gates. Exactly. Early days of Bill yeah. Gates, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that was probably the, 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 the first experience. Then, uh, then um, uh, the, the next one was probably around the same time I had a really good math teacher. Uh, he got me excited of... Uh, uh, mathematical proofs. And, uh, that I think is the, the first time I started understanding the power of proofs, uh, of, of, I mean, and, and we see this in, in data science today as well. I mean, you, you have numbers and, and you get a, a coefficient of a regression or, or something like that. And you make predictions. It's, it's, Similar, it's it's not as uh, sort of uh, direct potentially as as a mathematical proof, which is more logic, but it still holds. It still holds empirically. Um, so that was really fun. Um, and then I think it was uh, when I started uh, trading stocks um, because I, I started doing my own. Uh, what year was this, or how old were you at that time? Fifteen. 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 Uh, probably a bit. Younger. I mean, it was on this old computer. <laughs> so you, you were trading stocks on the computer, but how did it work at that time when you were 15? It was pretty good. It was pretty good, actually. Um, so it, I, I started doing uh, quant trading. Uh, so I had uh, a, an old uh, system that was called Viking, um, Viking Analytics or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and there you could code your own um, uh, technical indicators. Uh, so that became my, my trading, um, system. So you had, a, you, you, you figured out the trading model with technical indicators that yes. you used to, how fast could you trade? Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was not very fast, fast trading I've done later, but, uh, that, then it was like holding period of like two months or something yeah. like that because it was so small positions. Right? Yeah. Well, would you consider that day trading? Or is it l- slower than day trading? It was definitely slower than day trading. For yeah. me, day trading is, is the, you trade uh, intraday. Yeah, uh, intraday. Or, yeah, intraday yeah. Uh, or that, that potentially is more swing trading. But uh, um, uh, holding, holding something uh, a, a short period of time. Yeah, so it's, it's not long-term trading, but it's no. holding periods for about one or two months. Yeah, uh, 
that was what I did back then. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Because the, the, the commissions were so high that it just uh, yeah, yeah, blew yeah. through all of the profitability levels. But the thing is that the, the thing that I made my most money on was just a, IPOs. Um, buying an IPO and it went through the roof. So I, I bought the uh, Tivifura IPO oh. and that had me <laughs> home free. <laughs> <laughs> so you remember the best IPOs that you did? Uh, Tivifura, of course, is yeah. the one that came to mind. Uh, yeah, exactly. But be, because that one was so good, I, I made like 70% in less than a day. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. Did you sell it directly or did you have to? I sa- sold it intraday. Yeah, exactly. On the same day? Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I put in a limit, I think it was on uh, 100. That you, you bought it at 100 krona. Mm. And I think I added a limit of 172 and I got it sold at 174. So th- but that's, that's real profit when you actually can do it in the, the NPV. It goes, you know, in, that's nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And 15, then, 16, you said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how did TV4 continue to... Um, to perform, did it actually increase far above 170 or? I afterwards, yeah, definitely, but it, it did fall back. Yeah. Uh, so I actually, I, I was extremely fortunate uh, selling it at 174. I think it it ended uh, like the week at 140 or something like yeah. that. So I've done the opposite thing. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I sold it, you know, very early, and then it just skyrocketed like on, you know, double in one year, and that's uh, exactly. Yeah. I was <laughs> almost <laughs> able to buy uh, uh, Banken, um at mm. like six krona. Oh, and they did a new emission. Yeah, exactly. It was like tape. Yeah, but I was—that was when I was 18, and I wanted to have my own um, account. Uh, yeah. So I waited a month, and then they were up in 12. <laughs> uh, and I said, "No, the the ride is gone." And then it wasn't. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but let us take a—you know—where where did you and you know from this interest now? How did you think about going into school and university? The university idea. You know, where were you when you were planning for your university, and what what did you focus on? Yeah, uh, I've always sort of been drawn between the the area of of um, business, mm-hmm. business strategy usually, usually mm-hmm. uh, and something in mathematics. Mm. Um, and uh, it started out with uh, with really focusing on the business side. Uh, but I realized that it, it hadn't uh, enough of the the mathematics. Uh, mm-hmm. So after a while, I realized that hey, finance, finance, that's that's my thing. Um, so I moved to Lund and, and started uh, studying um, uh, economics there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And what did you think you were going to become? Do you remember this? I'm going to Lund now to become. Yeah. What. Uh, it varied over time. <laughs> yeah. uh, so originally it was a fixed income trader, then it was a uh, macroeconomic, uh, and then uh, moved into asset management. And then I started in asset management as well. Yeah. Uh, but it varied. So so you you did your, was it a master's down there in Lund? Or, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. A master's in, in economics. A master's in economics. Yeah. And then... I, we, I know you ended up in, in Nasdaq eventually, but what's, was that sort of, what was the first jobs you landed or how what was your trajectory to, to Nasdaq? And the, yeah. fir- the first job was, um, uh, actually, uh, the very first job was at a, um, uh, a company in Denmark called Simcorp. Mm. Uh, I didn't stay there for, for a very long time. Uh, it's a great company, um, but it wasn't really for me. Um, uh, and the, the next uh, job that I had was uh, starting up uh, Exact Fonder uh, here in, mm-hmm. in Stockholm. Uh, 
so I was uh, assistant fund manager of Exacto OMX uh, for a few years there. Uh, I so also, that was part of OMX? Yeah, that was part of OMX back then. Uh, and also I, I did some, uh, some fund management of some fixed income funds that we were, uh, managing on behalf of other companies there. So then you were a pure finance guy, so to speak, yeah, you exactly. were running the funds, working on the funds. Exactly. Exactly. That was also one of the first times that I, uh, saw the, I mean, uh, we were talking about mathematical proofs. Uh, this is where I, I started doing more the, the applying, uh, mathematical models or statistical models to, uh, to making money, uh, for something. So uh, creating the business value. And concretely, what type of models, what, what are we talking about here as a way to project, you know, what to buy and sell it or, you know, what was it concretely? Yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a model for index. Uh, so we, we were only doing index fund management and here the, the idea was getting as close as possible to the uh, reference fund uh, mm -hmm. that you have and preferably making more money uh, than the reference fund uh, rather than less money. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fund, uh, didn't have that much money. So it was, it was like 200 million Swedish krona, not a huge fund. Uh, and the, the fixed income market has very big, uh, nominal, uh, amounts that you need to invest in. So the problem was finding the, the optimal, um, rebalancing, uh, portfolio or the optimal balancing, uh, what's it called, um, uh, uh, index portfolio that that tracks the performance as as well as possible. So I did a PCA analysis on, on the uh, the what is PCA? Uh, principal component analysis. So understanding what the what the key uh, fluctuations, how how to describe them, and then using that to find the optimal uh, weighting. And what's the math behind that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, matrix analysis, uh, essentially trying to understand what, what causes the, the, the maximum variation in, in these movements. The interesting thing is that, uh, it, uh, the, the first moment in the, the fixed income market is that all, um, uh, all interest rates move uh, by roughly an equal amount up and down. So you can buy any type of instrument, really. Uh, the next one is that it uh, sort of steepens or, or flattens the curve. Uh, and then using those moments, you, you can actually do bets on the markets. So it, the, the exact same theory can actually be used to, to make bets. Um, for horses or, or sports betting, you mean? Uh, yeah, you can do that for <laughs> sports betting as well. And you can do it for option trading and you can do it for any, anything that has some, some underlying correlation structure. That, so, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool. Hmm. And, and how long were you in, in this game and, and what was the trajectory after this? Uh, I was there like one and a half years and then I moved into risk management instead. Still in OMX. Still group. in OMX. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Uh, and then for everybody, OMX was then Nasdaq at some point. Exactly. Exactly. So the origin is that this was the option market, uh, OM Group. OM Group then. Uh, and then uh, OM Group actually bought the Stockholm Stock Exchange. And that's when they added the X OMX uh, yes. to this. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, no, it so was, when was this, this, I remember I had uh, friends who worked there and still works there. So, yeah, this was, let's see here. I started there in, uh, 2001 was, uh, with, uh, exact founder and then, uh, 2003 to 2005 was when I was working at, uh, risk management. And, and, um, when did, when did, uh, because 
OM became OMX, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and basically they, they started to be basically manage and power up uh, stock exchanges. Yes, as exactly. A, as, as a simple uh, summary. I remember it because when I was uh, living in Australia, some of my best friends there were out on a gig from uh, OMX to, mm -hmm. and they were sorting out the, I think it was Sydney <laughs> Stock Exchange or, uh, or Australia. I don't know what it's called. You know, I can't remember it. ASX. But they were AS, AXX, right? Yeah, Australian Stock Exchange. Because the, two of my two good friends that I was, you know, hanging out on in Manly Beach, you know, they were going in and sorting out the whole, <laughs> they were working on the hardcore stuff, setting that up. Okay. Okay. So, but yeah. this, but this was about 2006, maybe mm -hmm. five, six. Could that be right? Yeah, it probably is. Probably is. Yeah. So uh, the OM group, because they, uh, no one was trading options originally. Uh, and um, there, there was, uh, and there were very, very few automated uh, systems in the world. Uh, even in the US, uh, they, they uh, frowned upon uh, electronic trading. And so OM had a huge head start on the whole world. Exactly, exactly. And also both for option trading and for stock trading. So there was the click system and the secure system. Yeah. And um, uh, so that, that was pretty early. And then many of these uh, companies that we have uh, uh, here as well, uh, what are they called? Uh, T-Bricks, uh, Orc. Yeah, Orc uh, Capital, yeah. oh, I like the system. Yeah, exactly. All of these companies, or many of these uh, systems actually come from, from people that have been working yeah. uh, at OM. So Orc is one of the part, parts of the trading system, how you connect the deals and all that, or yeah. how do you close the deals, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it it was uh, essentially the the, the front-end system yeah. to the uh, click system, which yeah. was the matching engine. Yeah. So we have now, this, this is quite early and, and we're, we're, we are quite sophisticated in OM Group. And so you have the click system doing what? Uh, the click was uh, option trading. That's the option trading then, core system. Yeah. And then there was uh, the SACS system, SACS system, which was the um, uh, cash trading. Right. And then Secure was doing the uh, collateral, man collateral oh. management and, and risk management. And then you had Orc as the front end. The front end for yeah. the customers or the... Well, it was actually, uh, originally there were two different front ends, one for cash and one for um, uh, option trading. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they created this uh, united uh, system uh, mm -hmm. for, for both uh, front ends. Mm -hmm. um, and that was essentially to, to make sure that you could uh, hedge your bets. Um, and that became then uh, uh, the work system. And, and maybe uh, a, a fun question, how much machine learning or analytics was part of these type of systems back then? Or I don't think uh, very much. Uh, in the risk management, definitely. Uh, the risk management, uh, but, but it's uh, fairly trivial uh, sort of, because it needs to be so robust. Yes. Uh, you, you Number one, right? Yeah, exactly. Robustness is, is the key there. Uh, so the systems are, are fairly trivial. Uh, they, they build on uh, these underlying principles of, of data and, and math, um, but they're really, really trivial. Uh, so we took sort of the historic um, uh, price changes, uh, daily price changes, and took, I think it was interpolated between the second and third most uh, volatile day. Something like that uh, to get the the um, 
error or the the, the expected the, the maximum price difference uh, and using that to uh, calculate the, the collateral that we required from the market. Wow, those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> Can I ask a question about, you know, some kind of a, more of a trading skeptic, so to speak? Yeah. He has some idea about, you know, fund management and, and these kind of organization that tries to manage different funds. And he claims, and please let me know if that's true or false, if you know, but he claims that the people that manage funds simply create X number of funds per year. They more or less randomly, or they have some ideas, but in 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 reality, it actually is it's just random if they will succeed or not. And then they take the funds that have failed and they shut it down and consolidate that into the funds that are actually you know, going well. And then by doing so over and over again, you constantly will have a set of funds that's going well. Yes. But it's just by random. And, and that's simply a like, technique or a strategy that they employ to make it look like they are a really good fund manager. Yeah, some, some do that. Yeah. It does exist, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, well, um, if you're approached by, if if you're very rich and you're approached by people trying to sell you a, a new fund and, and it doesn't have a lot of investors mm-hmm. uh, currently, that is a high risk, yeah, uh, without a doubt. But for instance, uh, Brumman Partner, mm-hmm. uh, what they do, I mean, they they, they understand this as well, and, and they see the risk of of getting one of those funds under their management. Um, So what they do is that they require uh, you to provide them with the expected profitability day by day uh, for that fund. And then you need to trade for six months, I think it is, six or 12 months. Uh, So really to see that this is a correct strategy. Mm. Um, So uh, what you should do is if if you want to invest in, in a hedge fund, Go with a brand name. Um, it's still that's, that's it's still a very basic yeah. advice, but it's sound. Yeah, it is. But and and, um, and now, how long how long did you stay all up in in, in uh, and did it turned into Nasdaq before you left, or had, was it still OMX when you left? It was uh, OMX when I left, uh, yeah. and then I left for um, uh, Reuters. Yes. Uh, at two thousand, I think it was two thousand four. Actually, now when I start thinking about it. Um, where I actually moved more into programming. Uh, it was more on, it was a group called uh, Solution Services Group. Uh, finance is so much about uh, modeling. Uh, so that uh, we, what we did was actually a, a lot of modeling, but uh, we focused more on uh, creating like Excel sheets or uh, VB.net models. And so Solution Services Group, what did they do in in the Reuters family, so to speak? What was your, what was the mission, so to speak? It was uh, a few different things. Originally, it was a a desktop design group. There there was something that was called a desktop design group. We read in the the real-time data from all of the uh, markets globally. uh, From the Reuters data points. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And then created uh, models for risk management, for asset management, for for anything, really. 
Uh, selling that to your customer, Reuters customers, or yeah, that? in many cases, it's just giving it away ah. for free uh, in order to to create uh, value. a value for the users for this, you know, to lock them in in loving the subscription, so to speak. Exactly as a value added service, mm-hmm. uh, but then we uh, transform that group into fr- from a desktop design group to a sol- solution services group, mm-hmm. and uh, the difference there was really that we we didn't focus on the desktop. Uh, we we focus more on on more. Advanced solutions. Uh, and what do you mean with the desktop? What, what, what? Uh, the desktop is Excel and uh, Cobra uh, at that point. So, Cobra. so basically, people were stuck in their sort of ex, you know whatever spreadsheets or Excel's they had at in their desktop, and you would like you would try to provide value from Reuters into their desktop environment of what was you know excel or whatever exactly they might had have an idea of how to optimally trade stocks um, but they didn't have a, a systematic on. way of doing that uh, so we developed the excel sheet uh, for them to to automate that process so as, a, as a lightweight uh, approach for a customer to get more systemized even if they don't have the full you know preferred system they're still using excel or something exactly exactly it was um in in london you often have something that's called a uh, desk quant uh, Mm. that does very similar work so they they uh, code up the solutions that the traders want to have um, in order to systemize uh the the decisions that they do and i think it's interesting because you know we can talk about fancy systems and data and ai and very sophisticated stuff but if, if you looked at what is what tech is used and making money and sort of in production, so to speak, yeah. there is a lot of this going on, yeah. I guess, still. Exactly, exactly. And also, I, I think it's an interesting development. I mean, if, if you look at the uh, the old movie Rogue Trader, uh, where they actually, the, 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 the fastest uh, information transfer they had was calling up someone on the trading floor with the cell phone. <laughs> and they saw that this was, hey, you, you have a change in the price in Tokyo. Okay, I, I'm going to buy. Uh, and then that's always sort of uh, the limit has, has been pushed over time. I was speaking with, with a, um, a really senior guy, um, uh, a customer that told me that, uh, his first uh, advanced uh, system was back in 83, and he was reading the pixels off of a, a video card. Uh, and using that, he predicted which digit uh, it was and then translated that into numbers. And when, when the, the price moved through thresholds, he would buy. <laughs> uh, have a question there? No. You have a biting your no, tongue? No, I am a bit because I want to move to, to like a, a bigger topic here about the stock market in general. But Maybe we should, not, do, do should, a, we, should we do a small rabbit hole? A small right? rabbit hole on stock market because we have a guest who can, you know, yeah. um, I love it. No, but of course, we, we want to think about, you know, the value of the stock market. And I think, you know, it has a really good purpose uh, and it would be fun to see what you think about what the purpose is. But I guess it can be partly that you want to have a way to provide capital for companies that to perform well in some way. But then you also have all the high frequency trading and you have the trading that occurs perhaps not because they believe in the value of the company, simply on the speculation itself and what other people would think of the company is more important than what they actually think of the company itself. Mm. And that can be disruptive or potentially not really beneficial for society or, or companies in general. Yeah. 
What do you think about the value of the stock market and, and high frequency trading and, and speculation and these kind of things? Yeah, um, <laughs> there is so much to say about that question. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that uh, you can't generalize between Europe and the US. Uh, okay. Those two markets work very, very differently. Uh, so a lot of what you, you hear about high frequency trading is probably true for the US, uh, but not true for Europe. Interesting. Um, the the thing that people don't understand about high frequency trading in, in Europe uh, specifically is is a lot of that uh, work is market making. What do you mean with that? Market, uh, making? market making is like if if you go in and want to buy um, uh, foreign exchange, you want to buy uh, euros uh, yeah. because you're going on a trip. Uh, someone is posting a two way market there. They're both buying and selling Swedish krona in exchange for mm -hmm. euros. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's just a part of the market. You need to provide that, um, that service to the market so that there actually is a price. Mm -hmm. And that's why they update the price so frequently as well, because, uh, the changes, uh, things happen in the market essentially. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is that, uh, the price could potentially differ between, uh, London and Sweden for the same, uh, instruments. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, uh, depending on, on what happens in the market and, and, um, you, you're also using the, uh, the, uh, derivatives market, mm -hmm. you, you need to update the prices, uh, frequently. Now, the, the, why do you need to update? Is, wouldn't it better to have the more stable markets? Yeah. I mean, in, in many cases, the, the best, uh, providers, the best liquidity providers, what you see is that the longer you can be in the market with your quotes, yeah. the, the more money you actually make. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's in many cases, the, the more junior firms that update their prices more frequently and they update their prices on the outside. Um, and that's because they have smaller inventory and, and loads of other issues. Yeah. Uh, but the, the structure in the U S is very different. Um, so in the U.S., uh, it's not independent stock exchanges. Uh, they're all connected. And the exchange is actually responsible for you to uh, get the best price. If you send the, the specific uh, market instructions that you want to get the, the best price in the market, mm -hmm. they are obliged to give you the best price. So it's that like they a find. price guarantee. They have to provide the value that is best in all the kind of exchanges that happens in the U.S. Then. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas here, that obligation is on the, uh, the, the bank. Mm -hmm or the, the, the broker that you're using. Mm -hmm. Now, this introduces a lot of uh, complexity um, because, uh, for instance, the exchanges not, don't necessarily always invest in the, in the fastest infrastructure. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. There is also some, some wording in the, um, the actual regulation, the, the Reg NMS, that uh, makes it hard for exchanges to give both the words in the, the text and serve the best needs of the, the brokers. Mm. Um, and there's like what, what actually happens in the market when there is a crossing price. And so both a, a buy and an ask on the mm. same price on different exchanges, what is it that they should actually do? Mm. Um, and, and all of these in, intricacies in, in the market actually uh, creates a need for uh, banks uh, to develop their own high frequency trading strategies. Now, the, the, this this opens up for 
uh, issues. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's leave it at that. Why uh, can't they simply regulate away that, saying that you're not allowed to do more transactions than this, period? Yeah. Well, you could do that. I, I personally think that uh, the the order should be in the market uh, over a, a long period of time. You, you yeah. need if if you send in an order, it, it should rest yeah. uh, for At a period. Of exactly. If we just step back, you know, what do you think the value for society of a stock market is, if if it's working properly? Uh, the value is for the long term investor, definitely. Um, but but, but oh, it's, it's uh, I mean, the original, the original uh, value for the, I, I like what, uh, I don't remember who it is. It's one of the CEOs for, for the Stockholm Stock Exchange that, that said this in, in a good way. Uh, the real value of the exchange is that it, it matches and, and pairs uh, the needs of uh, people that have a short-term need with those who have long-term need. And then he didn't go into the details of what short-term and long-term is. But, but isn't the actual need to have capital also a good purpose for the, the stock market in general? That the company that do an IPO actually do receive a lot of simply cash to be able to scale, etc.? Exactly. But you can that, that's the, 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 um, uh, the primary market. And then the exchanges mm -hmm. are actually the secondary market. Okay, I mean, it's like that. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's like going into rabbit hole with someone who knows several rabbit holes that throw <laughs> ones out of the first rabbit hole. It's always interesting because we, we, now you highlight what is a, we Then you need to dissect, uh, have a primary market with a primary purpose of raising capital for companies. Mm. And then we have exchanges mm. in different ways. And we work with derivatives. We work with different types of uh, financial instruments, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And so then, you know, you make a distinction between an, an, the exchange dimension and the primary market yeah. dimension. A really interesting discussion around what, what you're mm. talking about there is really the venture capital funds mm. uh, and really the the, IP, um, the, the, the startup community in, in the U.S. as well. Mm. Um, so uh, what, what we saw and, and were a bit afraid of in the early, uh, what's it called, teens, uh, so 2010, 2011, somewhere around there. Uh, more and more of the startups were moving to venture capitals, and and uh, uh, what what really was happening there? Uh, they were providing also intellectual information. They, they how do you start up a company? Yes, yeah, so the VC is not only money, but it's also the network, the advice. Exactly. The stuff that, you know, I have a higher chance of succeeding with my startup it has not only to do with money per se. Exactly. But, but before we move into that, can you just elaborate a bit more on the primary and secondary markets? You know, mm -hmm. What is the difference? How do they work? I, I haven't heard the term like primary market or secondary, secondary market before. The primary market is where uh, the company gets money from investors. Mm. The secondary Invest market, okay, yeah. investors, yeah. Okay. and the secondary market is where uh, investors trade with each other, right? But then, if you move on to the Stockholm Exchange, I mean that IPO in itself. I guess the IPO is being done on the secondary market, then. Uh, no, that's in the US. In the US, the IPO is is uh, run by the exchange. Um, yes. But not in uh, in uh, Europe generally. Uh, so the the IPO is run by the introducing brokers. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you. But it is on a market that is uh, like an exchange, right? No. Yeah, okay. or it's it's a book building activity. So you you go around and and ask investors if they want to invest in this company. 
and they build a book. Yes. And then uh, usually, uh, uh, if if you want to be listed on the Stockholm Stock Exchange, there is a requirement on how many hands that own uh, the stock mm-hmm. in order for there to be a proper secondary market. In the end, I think it's like five thousand uh, investors or something. Okay. I, I don't remember the the numbers, but you but need to get a direct IPO or something. I'm not sure what that meant, but they they actually didn't they circumvent that. I don't remember. I don't remember. But they, I don't think they took that route that yeah. most other IPOs. But, but uh, let's see if I understand it and can put uh, non-financial uh, lingo, lingo on it. In one way, okay, IPO is about, I, I want to go to the stock market as a company to, to raise money. And in the primary market, whatever we are doing, I buy into the Tesla stock or I buy into something like that and, and I trade the stock itself. Then when you get to a certain uh, level of how many owners of stock you have or, you know, you start going, opening up the next avenue and it's the financial instruments or other types of financial products that can be done based on the original stock. Is this what the secondary market is all about? Am I saying it wrong now? Because I'm thinking like, uh, you know, you start trading it's a little bit like the funds start trading with each other, the different brokers start trading with each other, and, and you can have option trading, you can have derivatives trading, you can have many different mm. financial instruments that has an underlying stock in the primary market first, mm. but they, we have spawned out to different financial products or instruments mm. that are traded in this sort of financial community. Yeah. Say, say that you uh, start a um, uh, company mm-hmm. uh, and... Usually, uh, you say you started with 50,000 Swedish krona mm-hmm. and you have uh, like uh, 50,000 stocks. Um, so all of the stocks are worth one krona. Mm-hmm. And I invest in your company, um, 10,000 krona or something like that. I give you 10,000 krona. Then I buy stock from you uh, on the primary market. Yeah. If I now sell my stock to Anders, uh, then that is on the secondary market. Ah. Because we're oh, selling these stocks between each other. So that's the real secondary market that you're basically, you're selling it or you're trading the stock itself between each other. Exactly. That's the secondary and where, market. Where, and how should I understand these other types of financial instruments that I was highlighting? Mm-hmm. That's slightly a different conversation. Maybe. Yeah, it is. It is. So say, for instance, uh, and, and you can do a parallel on, on funds here in, in Europe as well. Um, so if, if you go to Essabank and invest money in Essabank's funds, mm-hmm. then you're buying that on the primary market because you're giving money to that. Original fund. Exactly. But uh, ETFs. They're traded on the secondary market in many cases because they're traded on the exchange, right? You're buying ETFs. You have to exactly exchange traded funds. Yeah. Uh, I think we need to move on a bit, uh, <laughs> but uh, it is a uh, perhaps we, we can move back to but the it's DC good funds. One. We got into yes. a rabbit hole, outside, and we knew it's going to be a rabbit and hole. And it's a rabbit hole <laughs> outside completely my knowledge comfort zone and yeah. yours as well. I guess yes. a bit yeah, yeah, super cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think. Let's move on a little bit because from here you are then, I think you're going a little bit different route into price. You know, what's, what's the trajectory of the Reuters? Because you're quite strong in the financial space right now. Yeah, exactly. And how do we go from here to all the way to H&M? Maybe? Yeah, exactly. I mean, from, from Reuters, I, I moved into high frequency trading. Yeah. Um, so for a year and a half, I was doing high frequency trading in the U.S., 
uh, we had our servers uh, co-located with. Oh, we exchanges. need to go here. Then. <laughs> 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 it's moving into tech now. You know? yeah. This is fibers. At least do the tech store part of this. We need to do the tech part of this. <laughs> uh, and then after um, uh, this company, uh, Montsenery Capital, uh, I moved to Nasdaq, where I was for eight years, uh, and essentially uh, with the knowledge of what you did in in high frequency trading, how how that whole industry works and how you optimize. Uh, I was trying to regulate the market so that we actually didn't uh, that we that we had an orderly market, mm. right? Um, and then uh, now the, the the past two years I've been at H and M, and that's a real big shift uh, because I mm. I threw myself out uh, in a void. Uh, it's uh, it's the same type of models in many cases, but um, it the reason why I did it was that back in the the late 1990s uh, I found deep nuts, uh, found uh, deep learning models. And I really love them, uh, but you need to use deep data on uh, deep learning, as I see it at least. So images, voice, uh, text, those kind of models. Uh, and in, in finance, it's mostly uh, time series. Time series data. Yeah, yeah exactly. But but we jump now some super cool topics. I want to go. Uh, should we? Park I'm impressed. Or? Just you know the, because the, the both from... frequency trading and the Nasdaq. How to regulate? Those are two fantastic yeah. rabbit holes, by the way. <laughs> but should we just cover the the background first? And and it was a big switch from Nasdaq to H and M. Yeah. Perhaps you can just you know talk a bit more how that happened and, and why you made that switch. So uh, looking back at my, my career in, in finance, I've been in finance for roughly 20 years. I started in 2001 and I stayed there until I think 2019. So 18 years in, in finance. Mm. Um, I had uh, done uh, asset management, uh, which is the, the period at Exact Fulner. I had done risk management. I had done loads of different things as um uh, sort of during the, uh, the my time at uh, at Reuters, then I did high frequency trading, and then I did uh, uh, loads of different things at at uh, Nasdaq as well. Mm. But I, I started thinking, what should I do next? Yeah. And it was hard to find something that was really engaging. But then around the period of of 2015, uh, when we saw all of these uh, developments uh, in uh, uh, what's called the Atari playing games, reinforcement learning. Alpha Zero. Alpha Zero, exactly. Uh, I started realize, realizing that uh, deep models uh, were starting to create value. Um, that was actually one of the things that I, I told uh, Stefan Klang when uh, I interviewed with him, that I, I want to develop any type of fund, um, but I, I would prefer if we can use deep nets. Um, and the, uh, they weren't called deep nuts back then, but, uh, anyways, um, uh, but I, I started realizing that now it's happening again. Now, now we're starting to see this and, and, uh, I, I wanted to have a, a Swedish culture, uh, yeah. and I wanted to have images really that, that was the, the big idea that I had. Um, because you started to realize if I want to work on these types of, I need, I need deeper data than use time series data. Exactly. What can I go? Oh, fashion has images. Exactly. And that was actually, well, also that angle is, is really attractive to me because I, I don't have a fashion sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can join you with that. <laughs> <laughs> and being able to 
use data in a way to understand fashion. That was really attractive. Oh, the math guy. Okay, here I have a chance to really understand fashion. Exactly. You know, the brain doesn't work. I need math. Exactly. I started actually <laughs> searching for blogs on math guys uh, trying to learn uh, fashion. And there was this great article about how you uh, combine different colors by, by a real math geek somewhere in the world. <laughs> it was really fun reading. Yeah. I'm actually adding a, a topic here that we shouldn't go into now, but we, we spoke about the value of the stock exchange or the stock market. I would love to have a topic about the value of fashion as well, mm -hmm. uh, um, but perhaps not now. Yeah, I, I just added to the backlog. But I think, I mean, like there are so many great topics you also come up with, you know, that we, that we need to talk about uh, Bjorn in terms of, you know, uh, what we are working on and how we can improve it and all that. So I think, I think we should move into H and M now to set that context. Mm -hmm and do that for a little while. And then we can move into a lot of rabbit holes, including tech stack for frequency trading. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and some math as well, perhaps some, some Bayesian yeah, statistics. Yeah, and Bayes, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, but let's, um, but H&M. Yeah. So w w what are you doing in H&M and how would you frame, uh, you know, data and AI and how that works in H&M and what, what you, your team and what you guys are doing? Mm -hmm. Uh, currently, I head up uh, the data science organization or everyone who works with uh, data science in uh, and putting data science models into production at H&M. Uh, we're roughly 50 people. Uh, one year ago, we were 15. Uh, so we're growing uh, very rapidly. Uh, and um, uh, the way that we... roles are you growing for? Sorry. sorry. No, sorry. I was yeah, what roles are you growing then? <laughs> like when you're going from 15 to 50, going back to the original conversation, what roles is sort of growing the fastest? Uh, well, this is only data scientists. Only data scientists? This is only data scientists. So only people working with the models. And so not even ML engineers. No, exactly. So um, 15 to 15 data scientists Yes, exactly. in, in a broader cross-functional team. So right now we're uh, more than uh, more than 200 people in the uh, AI foundation. Yeah, so the organi organization you belong to is called AI Foundation. Exactly, exactly. And then outside of the AI Foundation, which is a product area that we have, uh, we have the AI, uh, AI analytics and data domain, AIAD. Um, and that there we have, I think the, the latest number I heard was uh, 681 people. But maybe now, maybe, uh, so... Actually, one way of digging into this is to actually understand a little bit, a little bit about how you have organized this because we are throwing out the different couple of units. Yeah. So maybe start a little bit like, you know, how is H&M organized? I mean, like, because we know H&M, but we don't really, everybody doesn't know how it works as a, as a value chain, so to speak. And in relation to that, how is that tech, you know, uh, how is that organized? So we get a feeling for H&M and how it all fits together. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, if, if we start with the value chain, which I think is a good way to approach it uh, from the start, H&M uh, doesn't really uh, produce their own clothes, uh, but we design them and then we uh, source from uh, external providers, uh, manufacturing firms uh, scattered across the globe. Um, so, uh, we have, uh, an area that's called assortment, um, uh, where, uh, the design happens, uh, and also assortment quantification and thinking about the, the different, um, 
the different concepts that we have. H&M is not just the H&M brand. Uh, we also have other brands like Arket and um, Kos um, and a few others. Um, but then we have the next area is uh, where we source, um, sourcing and production. Uh, the next so that's sourcing manufacturers for the clothes. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And then uh, logistics. Uh, so logistics is actually sep- You know, if you follow the vol- value chain now, the sourcing is one part, and you get production, and then you get the log- logistics. Exactly, exactly. Se- yeah, separately, separately. Uh, and then we have a customer. I would say. Now the 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 names of the different uh, areas is is different and and there's you you can go down into rabbit rabbit holes here as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I, about I, the stores themselves? I mean, logistics is one thing. Wouldn't the stores themselves be some you know, thing to optimize? And the That's part of customer. Or, it's you, part if, of customer. If you put a huge umbrella, it's customer, and then you can have digital channels. You can have mortar, brick and mortar. Exactly. Exactly. It, it actually falls into multiple different domains. So, so what we've done is that we've created something like like uh, a Spotify type of organization where we have domains and product mm-hmm. areas and products everywhere. Uh, and uh, the uh, the stores actually they they go into multiple buckets. Uh, so if if we start in in the assortment area, um, thinking about how to optimally design a store, uh, mm-hmm. it falls in under assortment, assortment mm-hmm. planning, store planning, etc. Yeah. Um, now we we try to we're constantly evolving the organization as well. Uh, so um, uh, starting now a specific product area that thinks about how to uh, cater for the needs uh, of the stores, and that's mm-hmm. in the customer domain. Specifically. It's a bit strange for me because I think the customers is uh, such a different thing than the product. And, and in your case, is the product mainly the clothes or is the stores themselves a product in some way? Since you've been so fo- focused on stores. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, in the good old days at H&M, uh, you could definitely build a career on just being able to open up stores in, yeah. in a really, really fast fashion. Right now, it's it's more about where to optimally locate them uh, mm-hmm. and what to do with the stores as well. There's a, there's a great value of the stores, uh, just meeting up and, and seeing the, the things in, in real life. I think also uh, what we did with Arket is, mm-hmm. is a really good uh, first uh, idea. Of what, what is Arket? Arket is, is one of the brands uh, that we have. Uh, and the, the concept is really that we, we combine clothes with a cafe. Oh. Um, so the, the social gathering in, in a store, uh, really taking that. To the so the understanding level. for the purpose and value of the store yeah. is evolving. Yes. Because yes. Uh, to use physically get your hands on a piece of H&M garment, mm. you can do that online. Yeah, exactly. So, and why do I then need a store? Well, I need it for this purpose or this purpose. And this is now evolving of how we understand the full customer experience. I exactly. Guess. Exactly. And now most of the parts that we have they they try to think omni um omni so channel. exactly omni channel H- how do you actually uh, should we uh, have our warehouses in the stores uh how should we distribute clothes from from uh, warehouses or stores or how do how do we work with that in in a good way uh, but also uh, how, how should people be shopping many use their their apps uh, even if they're in in the stores or in a, a warehouse um, so potentially you, you can shop and just pick it up in the store as well. 
And how, it, how do you think about online stores, though? Then I mean, we can take when compared to IKEA. I guess mm-hmm. it was very much a store focused, and they still had the paper catalog that they focused so much on. While in Ingvar still was driving the whole thing. But I guess they're moving more and more online. Uh, do you see? I mean, online could also be seen as you know so many different ways you can have an online store. Yeah, could be. You know, different you know types of of clothes or or garments or or products that you sell or it could be based on different type of customers or you can create so many different experiences there as well just as you can with physical stores or or do you see online stores just like a single global like market yeah exactly that, that you sell all the things in or how do you how do you compare the online versus physical stores i think the interesting question is what what is going to be seen as online and offline uh, in the future mm. so uh something that would be that really engages me is uh, because i don't have a fashion sense <laughs> i'd like to be able to go into a store and stand in front of a mirror and it suggests what i wear right. uh, depending on That's what it. i actually Uh, am I going to a date or am I going to a party? Yeah. So even a, a recommender system in the mirror sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. An augmented reality yeah. with, you know, taking your picture and adding clothes on top of it, I guess. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and this, uh, the multiverse. I mean, uh, are we... Are, you have to go to the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> you say Shinem there? Uh, we're, we have ideas. Yeah, we are. We are there uh, with uh, uh, Azor in the multiverse, actually. So you're one of the brands that is quite early inside the yeah, multiverse. Yeah, it was one of the, the first ones yes. that actually opened the store. That's what I mean. Multiverse, uh, exactly. Yeah, you and Nike, like I think, and a couple of more. You have Nike and, uh, and yeah. more or less. Yeah, Nike was among the first of them. Exactly. Yeah, but let's go there <laughs> a little bit. So what, what, what was that all about? You you had your store there? You, you know? It's actually not something that, that we were involved in, no. uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I don't know too much about it, okay. uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it's cool anyway. It is but cool. Which multiverse are we speaking about here that you actually launched in? Yeah, <laughs> Goran wants us to move on. Okay, very quickly, perhaps, uh, can you just speak about the H and M multiverse experience? The the idea that we have, I mean, we we use the multiverse really internally as as a, a concept of of merging the um, uh, the online w- uh, experience with the physical uh, mm-hmm. experience, um, but also uh, are, are we. Um, We we are moving towards uh, a world where we don't just want to sell H and M clothes. We want to sell uh, other brands oh, as well. We also want to resell um, your clothes. Um, I've seen this. This, this is this was actually launched quite recently, yes. right? That your secondhand or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how. Well, the we call it we call it resell. Resell. Yeah, that went live quite recently, right? Yeah, I think it was uh, yeah last week. Yeah, that. So this is a new, I mean, like this is also the whole sustainability trend and, and, and around sustainable consumption and all that. And that's also one of the reasons that I felt really attracted by, by H&M when I started here as well, that there yeah. was a, a strong commitment to the, um, to sustainability. Mm-hmm. And really when, when you start thinking about it, if we can improve how we design clothes and uh, not just how we design them, but making sure that as little as possible goes on sale, Uh, that's going to be a huge winning for for H and M, both from a profitability level, mm. but also from from sustainability. And uh, and what's the deal now? Are you only reselling your own 
branded stuff or you're reselling anything? Well, H&M also uh, owns uh, Selfie. Yeah, uh, so that's we, right. So, yeah. you can do, so basically, if it's H&M's, we can go this way. If Otherwise, we can go to Selfie. Yeah, exactly. And that's also how we are thinking about Omni. I mean, we, we, uh, we, we want to sell other brands. We want to sell, resell any mm-hmm. kind of brand as well. And that creates uh, complexity for us on mm-hmm. the AI side, right? Because yeah. we... we uh, we want to support with uh, automatic uh, transcription, automatic sort of uh, recommendation of how to sell this to other customers uh, based on just an image or something like that, a very noisy image that people add to the, the site. Yeah, but maybe we should go back there used to, to, to finish off the story. So we have a sort of high level value chain painted and then we, we dug a little bit into the customer domain. Mm-hmm. So w- how do we now fit the tech organization towards this? Uh, like if, if we, not, we are starting from the AI foundation, but h- how does this stack up towards the value chain? How, how is tech organized or the IT or data? I don't know what you call it. Yeah, I, I think uh, the whole discussion around, um, yeah, now you can go into uh, uh, an app and, and buy air clothes. Mm. Uh, and that was the starting point of, of uh, this whole journey that H&M is on right now. Uh, because up until around 2015, uh, the, the growth strategy of H&M was really tied to stores. Mm. But we, but, and you can see this uh, yeah, on, yeah, on yeah. The, the stock price as well. <laughs> uh, it, t- it took a huge uh, dip uh, there uh, that people realized that this is potentially not sustainable with the way that people are starting to move uh, to online channels and buying. And that's when uh, Kaliwan uh, went to Arte, this, uh, this classical uh, discussion or uh, description, ha- how that all happened. And when we started the, the AI function, Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, based on uh, well, when we had the AI function and started to realize uh, what we actually need to do in order to become truly digital, that's when the, the business tech journey started, when we merged uh, business tech and AI into one function uh, that works in, in these uh, scrum teams uh, and creating the domains around. But, but uh, can we slow down right here? Because definitely. I think... A lot of larger corporates are sort of in their traditional IT supply, IT demand, you know, IT Tom McKinsey's, I think, coined it in, in the 90s. And we all, we are living by it. You know, we have an IT supply with the CIO, it's IT. And now we have an IT demand maybe with a BIO or someone who's sort of translating the business needs and the business budget to the IT supply. And there's this distance in, in, in some ways, right? And here now we come with data and we come with business intelligence and AI and it's, you know, the CIO originally was there to have the basic systems running and, uh, you, know, is, you know, infrastructure and, and now data and analytics, you know, so we are all struggling in understanding the role of IT and how, how it has grown now. And here we now have H&M talking about business tech. What is business tech or, or how is this sort of what you're thinking here? The business tech organization, the idea behind it is really to to. Uh, place business as closely as possible together with tech. And uh, to me, that is having a common culture. Mm. Uh, The business speaks tech and tech speaks business and everyone understands AI essentially. And data, definitely. For me, data science is really about creating value from data. So there is no... And used to position, is business tech here and do we still have a, or how would I frame it? IT or like an IT department in, 
or is that all emerging into business tech? We don't have any IT uh, uh, department like, outside of business tech. No, so, so the new form organization around technology became business tech mm -hmm. and then basically was made up. You had AI as a, as a core separate function over here, what Arti created. Mm -hmm. And then you had traditional IT where yeah. you have your, you know, a different system of records or different, different core systems, legacy systems. Yes. And out of this, you, you shaped business tech. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, that has been ongoing for, for a long period of time, one and a half years uh, now. Mm -hmm. And we knew that the, the original blueprint for business tech was, was just a early blueprint, uh, yeah. and that the, the structure would evolve, uh, which it also is. Um, but I think it's, it's a really good, uh, uh effort and, and shows the, the founding family's, uh, dedication to this transformation journey. And what, what was the compelling it? I mean, because this is a huge transformation, I yes. would argue, and it's, I applauded well because I think this distance between traditional IT and business is killing any journey of to become truly digital. So mm. I think, and, but it's so painful because we haven't been used to doing it like this. Mm. So why did you do it or why, what was the compelling event? So, you know, how was the conversation that we need to do this? Do you remember the story? Uh, I mean, it was really that, uh, the, the growth strategy was out the window. Uh, we couldn't uh, survive on just starting up new uh, new stores. That was that was the reason, and uh, it was tested during these uh, initial years um, to see if if we could transform. Um, but then also, what, what people realized was that we needed to also uh, transform not just sort of the other ways of working within the IT department and business, that relationship, but also how all of our processes work, how, how uh, logistics works, uh, that we actually need to um, uh, have data on how uh, things are shipped uh, globally. Uh, so it's, it's a huge uh, change, not just uh, sort of limited to the ways of working between business and, and tech, I would argue. Oh, we were on, we were a little bit onto this already. Yeah. <laughs> that what is the real change here, or what it, what is it that you need to change? Uh, you, you you commented like we have this classical McKinsey seven S. You had to remind me what the seven S was all about. But, exactly. But in a nutshell, if you rephrase what you said, if you change one of those seven S's, you need to change all of it, definitely. So if you change the organization, or if you if you're planning to change your strategy, you need to change your organization. You need to change the potentially the the Profiles they recruit to different uh, uh, roles, uh, so it has a huge impact. And and finding this um, the the optimal structure is sort of a reinforcement learning problem, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need to test and evolve. But I, but I, I think the profound learning or the pro profound realization. I, I I had a very similar realization that you can't change this as you can't approach this as a pure tech problem, or you can't. It, approach as a pure organization problem. They are it's a multifaceted problem and it's like the old uh, kutus, like the house of cards. If you, you if you pull that, you know, it, it falls. So you need to have it all sort of work uh, as a holistic uh, system. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and for me, that is uh, finding this uh, common culture uh, that, that um, 
everyone needs to everyone needs to have their specialized roles. Uh, mm-hmm. Going into the, the discussion about uh, we, we started with just data scientists and now we have a huge spectrum of different roles. Um, but all of those people need to have a common understanding of what it is that how they create value in this organization. Uh, so there's there's both uh, the commonality, but also the, the differences, the, the spectrum. Uh, in many cases, the, the way I think about the H&M organization is like it's a small city. Uh, mm. And we have uh, loads of different initiatives driven by different areas of this city. Um, but if, if we don't all believe in this city's prosperity, uh, then it's, it's all out the window. I, there are so many dimensions in this conversation. I'm mean, like one of the one of the that comes to me. I don't know if you want to go down here, but I find this a really, really. We are all clear that this is how it should be done. I, I truly believe it. But then we have the re- re- reality of we have our different backgrounds. We have different. How should I put it? Different literacy and understanding of tech yeah. versus different literacy and understanding the domain. We have different lingo. You know, one guy is speaking Chinese. If you're one manufacturing here, we speak English, and now we should all speak Python. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so there's so many challenges to get this to fly, right? Exactly, and also uh, tying back to the discussion that we had, that yeah, a data scientist can't solve everything, and an ML engineer can't solve everything either. We, uh, in in order to serve our models uh, on uh, websites globally, we can't. We can't do that on the, the people that we have. We have a whole transformation stream just focused on how to serve real-time APIs. We have a whole transformation stream just how the website is going to serve models. Mm-hmm. Um, it's huge. Yeah. What, what, what thoughts are you coming up with here? Because there's so many dimensions we can go, but we can also continue. Uh, I want to move into technical topics. That's why I'm just waiting for that. But, but just speaking a bit more about the... I guess the the team that you or the teams that you're having is called the AI function, and you also had all the different value change um, parts that we have from the design to the manufacturers to the assortments, logistics, and the customers and everything. What are you working with right now? Can you mention some examples of how you're trying to find value in data in these different parts of the value chain? It is constantly across uh, the whole value change, so it's um, difficult to to sort of narrow it down. We don't have to give a full, like, but just some interesting examples. Uh, I think um, there's there's things on new things uh, developed and things on improving how we're uh, working, uh, both on uh, modeling, uh, definitely. Um, Some of the new interesting thing that we're working on is... uh, um the the way that we want people to be able to find clothes for instance uh in in this new uh, multiverse and why do you call it multiverse with the multiverse do you mean the combination of the physical and online yeah experience? exactly exactly yeah okay yeah um so it's it's not just the multiverse it's actually it, it is both the physical and the online experience so to speak exactly yes. exactly and also okay. uh the own brands and other brands yeah good cool. uh, and then you want to help people find clothes somehow exactly exactly uh so uh what we've done historically is that we've uh th- I, and this is this is a potentially interesting discussion when we talk about spotify and and um ha- how recommendations work there because 
the challenge that we have is that uh, yeah, at Spotify, you, you listen to music and you listen to playlists. Whereas uh, at H&M, what you want to do with buying clothes is that you want to uh, combine the cloth, uh, clothing item that you have with other right. things that you have in your wardrobe. I guess we could compare it to a genre in music as well. You, you want to find something. I guess it's different because you want to have similar in that case and you want to have complementary kind of clothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I want my wardrobe that I... I buy a new piece. It, I love it. I want to buy it, but it, it's a problem if I buy a piece of clothing that doesn't fit with anything else I wear. Mm. Exactly. Then you need to be like us, not having the fashion sense, and then it works. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's the point, right? Yeah. You, how can I, how can I smartly invest in my beautiful items? But being able to, this will fit well together in my wardrobe. Exactly, exactly. And one one of the the inspirations that we have here is that uh, Pinterest, for instance, uh, we want to be able to offer people the ability to create uh, outfits uh, using style boards um, uh, in order to understand how people put together outfits. Now, so style board is what. Uh, a style board is uh, where you uh, essentially it's it's a generalization of favorites. Uh, you would you right now you can you can favoritize uh, items and and these are the things that you really like and based on your favorite items we would potentially give different recommendations to you. Mm -hmm. But if we can create multiple different style boards and you can also give these style boards name, then we can start understanding that ah this is something that is called. Um, for my party. This is date night. This right. is something else. Mm -hmm. And then you start understanding uh, this more complicated concept of, mm -hmm. a, uh, of an outfit. Um, the interesting it's thing- It's actually similar to music in some way. You have party yeah. music, date music, work music, uh, sleep music. Exactly. You have sleep clothes, you have yeah. work clothes, you have date clothes, you have party clothes. Exactly, right? exactly. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Karo so, Kishko. Uh, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> Anders is a big karaoke fan, so, ah. so we can go there later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> karaoke night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With uh, an H&M um, empowered clothing and a Spotify empowered music, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah. Okay, cool. That, that would be a karaoke party from hell, right? <laughs> from hell, yes. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the ultimate. No, but, maybe the ultimate. I think, Kevin, so, I think yeah, this is a really better. interesting point, you know. So, okay, let's say that someone is interested in having a, like a nice party outfit yeah. somehow. Yeah. And how can potentially AI help H&M and customers with doing that? I mean, usually the way AI works is that you, you have some training sets and you learn from people and you generalize, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what we want to have is people uh, tagging clothes as party outfits yep. uh, and then learning uh, what are common patterns across that and then generalizing. Yep. Um, what I find is super interesting when we have a global brand like H&M is that we can also learn how party uh, as a concept differs between different regions. All right. Uh, so, of course. Yeah. Well, one thing in, in one of our early models, uh, this was... Um, that people wanted to see what uh, what uh, we, we had something that was called style clusters. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and people wanted to understand what the style clusters looked like in Japan. <laughs> Everyone wanted to know what the yeah. style clusters looked like in Japan because they were they are the first. Yeah. They know they know the shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are they really? Who, who is who is the like uh, pioneers of any kind of fashion that happens? Who, who is first coming up with new fashion styles? The first. Uh, do, is it a specific region in the world that is 
it, it, leading the the like drive-in fashion? That's so super interesting. I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, from from my own experience, I don't know. But what I understand is that it depends on your subgenre. Mm -hmm. mm. uh, so I, I have a Good product answer. owner in the uh, in the team, and he was like, "There's this uh, this there's this bar down in Gothenburg." And they're like always six months ahead of me. <laughs> and I was like, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know they're ahead of you and not sort of just on a tangent or something else? Mm. No, six but, it, but, it, but I can really resonate with that because if you if you think about hot couture or fashion like this, I, I I'm, I'm speaking as a no no knowledge, and then I can trans and then I can um, contrast that with Japan has been really famous for their sneaker culture. So, so as an example, like sneakers was really super popular, uh, you know, and became fashion statements in the US, but the ones who made it into a collectible was actually Japan. And then, and then it went huge in, uh, in, uh, in US. And then you have, you know, you have all these collaborations around sneakers. I mean, like, so I can really understand how Japan has one part nailed and then you have I, I would assume the normal fashion capitals has the other parts exactly exactly i think uh, london for instance uh, has has one sub genre yep. uh, paris has one has new no york one. has one but japan definitely had uh, one of the core customers that h&m uh, has is the young female mm. and i think uh, for for them i mean it's it's probably paris as well but uh, tokyo was was really bubbling but cool. You speak a lot about the domain, a lot of, about the business. I'm really lacking the tech here. Let's go there now. But, <laughs> yeah. but do you have anything? Um, I, I understand you can't speak about everything you're doing, but can you give some examples perhaps how some kind of AI technology would help with finding outfits that complement each other in some way? Um, I think, uh, again, going back to, uh, to uh, the Pinterest, uh, I mean, uh, and I'm mostly on the the uh, modeling aspect. Uh, what I really like is is the graph neural network uh, mm -hmm. approach there. Yeah. Um, basically, because uh, it combines all of the the different elements that I think uh, make up um, uh, fashion. Mm -hmm. So you have the the um, uh, the image. Mm -hmm. You have the text. And the image of, of a specific uh, garment or, or like piece of clothing. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Not the person, but actually the clothes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you have the description of this and then yeah. you have the network, the network effect. Okay. Network between what? Network people. between people. Yeah. So Not between the clothes in some way, how they are combined or something. You can do that as well, depending on which uh, network architecture that you mm -hmm. want to use. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I'm mostly thinking about... Um, you as a person will be influenced by the, the clothes that other people are wearing mm -hmm. and therefore, uh, you, you're looking at other people and, and trying to learn from them. It's not the clothes learning from each other. So would you argue like network effect around different, I, I would argue like fashion communities. I mean, like these are the street guys. This is the skaters. This is the, is that Don't what distract you? a tech talk here now? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So we had a graph neural network that. Connects images of clothes, descriptions, I guess, in text. And then we have networks of people that wear clothes in some combination. Mm. And, and how have you done any prototype of this? Or can you just elaborate a bit more how that works? Yeah, I mean, Pinterest Small really builds on the concept of, of pin boards. Mm. Uh, so you need to have the style boards in order to uh, get the data uh, to do this properly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so far we haven't, uh, used it with the, um, with the network effect. Um, okay. 
But you have the clothes in the descriptions then and folks on that or? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we put them through uh, embeddings and then uh, use the embeddings to learn from from these. Um, mm-hmm. And it really, it works pretty well. Um, okay, so just, you know, sorry, I, I want to go as, as techy as we can. So, as techy as we can, yeah. So you have clothes, some images, and you find some embedding of those. Mm-hmm. Can you mention some network you're doing or some kind of neural network that you are using to get the embedding from, from the clothes itself? Uh, I mean, we're, we're experimenting with all different, and I actually don't know which one is performing the best. Uh, mm-hmm. We have them all that also uh, automatically, it, it's AutoML. It, mm-hmm. it trains all oh, of so the... Oh, so you use AutoML on Google, or which AutoML are you using? Proprietary. Uh, so we, we uh, have uh, multiple different models and then just uh, train all of them and, and automatically choose. So that, oh, that so is like the level... like a hyper tuning kind of thing? Or it, is it, it actually it, different it, models? It, it's not an AutoML in the sense that it's deci- uh, uh, deciding on the network architecture, at least okay. not in, in the, no. the version not that I saw. Not like architectural search or anything like no, that? No, exactly, no. exactly. But also in a ML in a, in the sense that it's trying a set of different models and mm. then choosing the best one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. And it's still basically uh, deep learning kind of uh, networks that you're trying or experimenting with. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. And, and you get uh, some embedding, and you do the same with the descriptions, I guess, and, and you get some embedding from those as well. Exactly. And I guess it's some kind of BERT-based uh, model, or do you know ah, which model? It's, it? it's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone goes with BERT. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm trying to drag you out here with some details, but I, I can understand you don't want to talk too, too uh, detailed about this. But it, it, the, the thing is that we're in a very exploratory phase right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the thinking is that we'll probably uh, fund a few uh, PhD programs uh, mm-hmm. just on this topic uh, mm-hmm. because it's such a big topic for us. Um, but yeah, we, we, we experiment with, with different uh, versions of this, seeing which one is, is the best. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not like, okay, this one is the one that we use. And how do you know which one is the best then? So you have some kind of input, you have the clothes, the description, you want to see how they are connected. And then in some, some way you, you want to have some objective, some, something that you can try to optimize for. Uh, what's that going to be? Is just the frequency of people wearing that combination of clothes or what is the objective? So what we've used, uh, we, we, uh, we've used mostly offline metrics. Yeah. Uh, so precision uh, or recall or a combination of, of the two. Um, but so then we... To classify what, if they actually have these clothes in combination or yeah. what? Mm? Exactly. Okay. And then um, we... Um, uh, Online would be fun, though, if you actually tell people to wear it and then see what happens. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's in vitro versus in vitra kind of, you know, experimentation, but... It would be fun if you also do, you know, on purpose kind of exploration with uh, trying to suggest bad combination of clothes and see how people react. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Perhaps not very ethical, but definitely if they post them. <laughs> <laughs> could, no. we, could we explore a little bit, like, and, and how how is this sort of what's what's the vision or dream around putting this in production? How, how would we envision this as a user experience? You know, so, so what are you going to do with it or how are you going to experience this? Yeah, uh, so I mean, it, it's a really interesting discussion. So, so, so far, uh, what we've done is that we've done offline uh, testing of this and, and trying to uh, find the best combination of, of different network architectures and embedding spaces, et cetera, et cetera. 
the what we've also done is that we've uh, done a b testing of this mm -hmm. uh, okay. it, it, it works pretty well uh, definitely but we have multiple different versions of this and we have multiple different types of uh, architecture uh, so not just using uh, graph neural networks, uh, but also other deep learning models. Yeah. And depending yeah. on which version of this, the A-B testing results. So how differ. does the A-B testing work? So it, does it provide recommendations when you have bought something and you have some kind of uh, complementary Item, items to buy or how, how does the A-B testing actually work? It depends on the product. So sometimes we look at transactions and sometimes we look at clicks. Uh, mm. We do this over emails. We do this on, on the site. Mm. Um, so uh, depending on uh, if, if it's, if for instance, in an email, uh, in many cases it's click-through rates. Mm. Um, but we could do that on transaction as well. Mm. Um, uh, but then it's just normal A-B testing. Mm? Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. So that sounds like a really interesting uh, product. Do you have a name for it, like complementary clothing uh, optimization or something? I don't know if I should say, but uh, it doesn't matter too much. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. That's one example. Anything else you can share? Some interesting example that you're working with. Um, I mean, we have, uh, we're experimenting with, for instance, uh, Markdown. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we have a product called Markdown Online. Uh, right. so. Also working on a Markdown in stores. Uh, so uh, helping, the, the, help, helping the stores to identify the right timing and the right Markdown. Exactly. In order to have the optimum price in relation to movement exactly of, of goods of store you know exactly turnaround in, exactly. in the store and also not selling uh, out too quickly yeah. uh, having a good assortment of of uh, assortment of of different clothes uh, for for customers entering the store and also doing predictions on uh, when when things are so this becomes recommended assistance for the store so to speak in order to balance and optimize the assortment in the store so to speak yeah exactly exactly uh, we uh, another interesting, very interesting project actually is um, uh, using external data uh, to understand how uh, different uh, demographics and customer uh, groups are scattered through the globe, and thereby understanding how to optimally uh, tailor our assortment to the stores um, and also develop the assortment in a good way. Um, so do we have specific uh, buying patterns uh, that can be traced to certain um, yeah, regions? De regions, demographic groups, ethnic groups, uh, generally sort of can, can we predict where uh, certain uh, groups of outfits would make more sense? And potentially do we want to build a new brand around that? Mm. Very I mean, we had another guest before that spoke about you know creating brands and, and doing that in extreme, if you remember. Yeah, I have uh, um, Bjorn uh, Paulman Spenger, a friend of mine, who who has a background in fashion tech. Mm. He's he's he's, he's uh, uh, running a, a, a blog, Framtidens e-handel, where he's been going down going going down the path of you know the future of the e-business and in, in particular fashion retailing right mm. and basically uh, the, of course now when you have drop shipping from china and all that yeah you can you can start creating different completely different business models so he had a guest on on his podcast where basically 
he basically had taken the whole automation of new brands to the next level. So, so, the, so this is real, right? So there's, there's a guy out there in Sweden who starts about, uh, just pop up on, 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 on internet, uh, 10 to 20 brands per week. Mm. And basically, so he's, 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 he's trying to pick the trends on our people. We need handbags or the, you know, the, now, now the, the time is to buy, you know, whatever. And then basically he, he creates a brand uh, as a store brand. And then he has assortment that he chips from China. And then basically he's, he's doing a B testing on brand level. Yeah. On, you know, in the hundreds. Mm. So, so all of a sudden, so he has the whole model wired. So how he basically sees what is taking off and then he gets stuck and, and what it doesn't work and then he kills it off. Yeah. But this is really interesting, right? This is going, you know, meta on, on the whole problem, right? Of yeah, brands. exactly. Exactly. No, that's super interesting. Super yeah. interesting. And uh, it can all be automated now because he has done the coding, the infrastructure as code, how to, how to set up a Shopify setup shop, how to brand it, how to color it, even the, the uh, you know, logo generator. <laughs> Is it GAN based? <laughs> I don't know, but it, but it was interesting how you can go meta on e-commerce, you know, how you can really think in many different dimensions here, of course. I think, we, you know, we just have like uh, 25 minutes left here and we need to sh stop at like uh, seven o'clock sharp. Um, it, it would be fun to just close off a bit H&M and see, perhaps you can mention something about future plans that you're having for the AI function or H&M or something that customer could potentially look forward to soon? Anything you can mention there? That's a good question. Um, I'm not 100% sure I can do that, unfortunately. I guess that's not. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, okay. But, but let, let's, let's, can I reframe it a little bit? Yes. So what is your outlook? You know, what is the, you know, what is this trend? What, what is the path right now for sort of 2022, 2023? What, what will we see more of in general? I, I think you have highlighted how to experiment with outfits and all that. This is the one major trend that yeah. will come or is already quite deep in the makings. Yeah. Uh, do you see any other, you know, core trends which will be very much data and AI driven? I uh, think the the way that people uh, interact with um, uh, clothes and styles in mm -hmm. general uh, will develop a lot during the year. Mm -hmm. So uh, the ability to find... I mean, we, we have so many clothes, uh, individual items on our store. And it, it, many times uh, people use Google instead to, to try to find the, the clothes that they're looking for. Mm. Yeah, the ability to, to give people the, the best shopping experience um, and finding the thing that they want, even if they've never shopped at H&M before, that is uh, what we're actually investing a lot of time in, in right now. And that leads to perhaps a more mm, difficult question, perhaps, but but I think it's, it's interesting to just think about the best shopping experience, as, as you spoke about. Um, yeah. We also had Amazon launching in Sweden recently, and a lot, I think a lot of uh, e-commerce companies was really scared about this, yes. but it didn't turn out to be that big of a, at least not that big of an impact yet. Or what's your thinking about, you know, a big, one of the biggest companies in the world coming and they have, you know, extreme market share in the U.S., for example. Yeah. Do you fear the on-take of these kind of big tech giants and how they could influence? H&M is a really big company, but if we speak more generally about like smaller retailers or e-commerce companies, 
Do you think that's a real uh, danger that can happen in coming five years? I think people really need to start thinking a lot about how people want to shop, mm -hmm. just as you say. Uh, and the question is, do you want to shop on Amazon? Uh, do you want to shop everything uh, through the same outlet or do you want to have something that's more geared to uh, a specific need uh, mm -hmm. that you have? Um, I potentially wouldn't go to Klaus Olsson to buy everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I, I want to have some But can Klaus Olsson have the same kind of customer experience uh, as these kind of huge tech giants have and provide? With you know the best type of recommendations, uh, you know delivery on the same day or hour and whatever. Exactly, exactly. It, it really depends on what you're after, right? Mm. Uh, so, and I think people need to think about that. I think uh, that the stores, for instance, is one of uh, it, it's a benefit for us, even though it's very costly. Uh, Uh, but uh, if we think smartly about how to leverage stores, uh, definitely it, it uh -huh. can be a com key competitive advantage. I think that's also why Amazon is, is thinking about stores, right? Mm. How to use the stores and how to do them in a, in a good way. Um, do you sell H&M clothes through Amazon? Uh, not that I know of, but we have a, a few other uh, cooperations um, like uh, uh, Mintra. Um, so in India, uh, we have. But okay, so what, what's your prediction for five years ahead? Uh, do you think, you know, we have spoken a lot about the AI divide and these kind of tech giants are hard to beat because they have such, you know, awesome technology uh, serving them. And it's hard for the small companies like Klaus Olson and whatnot mm. to keep up. Yeah. Do you think this will start to converge or they will actually start to catch up or do you think it will increase in the divide between this type of you know, huge tech giants and the small average kind of company? I think I think it depends on the time scale. Um, so I, I love this exp uh, expression that uh, in order for AI to be really valuable, it needs to be boring. Um, and I think uh, if, if you can just download uh, AI capabilities from Google uh, easily and integrate into your web portal, uh, then what will the, the key competitive advantage be, using AI or not using AI? Potentially, it can be sort of uh, the ability to use the data. Uh, potentially, the front ends will change as well. Uh, so, and now I'm uh, when I say front end, I, I really mean the browser. The browser potentially can give the recommendation, like Google is doing in many cases. Uh, so I, I think it's really early to say. I, I don't necessarily say see that Amazon has a. a Uh, a huge advantage, especially not uh, compared with um, with H and M, but uh, it could go down that route. Mm -hmm. But but let me uh, let's let's move out of H and M here a little bit, and uh, we have a couple of very interesting topics that uh, Bjorn uh, pointed out um, that I think we should go into now. And I think the first one is a perfect segue from your question, Anders. And I'm actually reading a little bit uh, how Bjorn has, you, you did it really well. You, you framed it uh, as, you know, what we could talk about. And and help me here because you, you have done some sort of thinking around, you know, if, if on a macro level we have seen, uh, if, if we learn from the past, if we learn from the history, that whoever is sort of, whoever is mastering a certain capability yeah. in, in society, 
yeah. has has uh, over time always there has been a distribution of wealth yeah. towards uh, those capabilities. And now we're here now have new capabilities in AI. So could you please, I, I would like to hear your words on the whole story here, what I was trying to say now. But if we if we take the historical perspective and then move and from that past take us into a trajectory. Yeah, definitely. Co- that conversation. Could please elaborate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it all goes back to sort of the, the concept of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, so uh, we, we had different ways of industrial revolution. And, and the last... Um, the last big wave of, of this, is, as I see it at least, uh, started in the early 1900s uh, when uh, people, more and more people uh, were freed up from, from farming so that they could go into education. Mm-hmm. Uh, that opened up for, for more and more people going into engineering and more and more specialized engineering. And we had the advent of, of the computer. Uh, this uh, old uh, Babbage machine uh, was finally put in in production, and uh, and uh, that and in a computer itself. before before computer existed was actually a human doing calcula- calculations. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah I love that. Have, have you seen that a, a NASA movie of the first computers at NASA? Yeah, There's a so. beautiful movie around um, uh, who were the computers. Mm-hmm. at NASA and th- this was human computers and then they had the first IBM machine and yeah. eventually those ladies, mm-hmm. it was a group of ladies that was uh, computers, they figured out to learn how to program, uh, you know. Anyway, this is a good movie on human, on computers. Yeah, hidden hidden curves, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. You have seen it, right? Yeah. Fantastic it was, movie. It was really good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, As a math nerd and computer nerd, it's cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But please, back to... You're, you are, we are moving into a story around industrialization and how we now pick up the thread again here. Yeah. And if, if you look at, uh, again, going back to my sort of finance uh, background, if, if you look at the, the biggest companies in the 50s, uh, they were mostly like in, in oil, gas, uh, automotive. But if you look at the, the 1970s, uh, they were uh, starting, you, you started getting, NASDAQ was formed back then, right? Mm. Uh, and you started getting these tech companies. And that, that was the unlisted stocks uh, that went to, to NASDAQ. But that was IBM, not IBM, but Microsoft, Apple, all of these companies mm. were listed on, on NASDAQ. But also, if you, if you go to, for instance, uh, our world in data, you can see a really interesting pattern uh, of how much uh, uh, wage uh, in a country that went to the top 1% uh, earning people in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And it actually bottoms uh, in uh, the 1970s. So you can see that in Sweden, the top 1% earners uh, were making 4% of the total wage. And in the U.S., it was 8%. Mm -hmm. Since then, it has increased. And in the U.S., it's back at the same level as it was in the... 50s. Even earlier. Yeah, 1990s. Uh, Sorry, uh, 1990s. So So what you're saying is the distribution of wealth right now, the the, the, the 1% earns more of the whole gross national product of the country, so to speak. Yeah, they they earn, I think it's like... uh, 
25, 30% of, of all wealth in, uh, or all so this, income. So, and, and now in here we are talking about then that if you own the oil fields <laughs> and now if you own the data fields, yeah, exactly. Uh, you, and you have, you have a, a condensed type of organization has a capability that the other ones don't possess. Yeah. It, it drives inequality. Yeah. It's ultimately right. huge, uh, differences in, uh, in, uh, in wealth and in, in income. And typically what's the problem with that? I, I think uh, criminality, uh, the risks of people saying that, okay, you, you, uh, potentially you went to college, yada, yada. Uh, but still, you're making that much more than me. So I think people can accept uh, uh, some degree of, of uh, sort of wage discrepancy, and that's probably cultural dependent, uh, how, how big that difference can be. But, uh, the, but the you, you're ultimately gap. building a class society. Yes, in, in, the end, in the end, we are actually on a trajectory which is taking us back to a class society. We're not moving forward. In, in, we can talk about this as yes. much as we want, but in the real data, the amount of people, the few yeah. that owns the more has gone up since the seventies yeah, and quite dramatically. Quite dramatically. We're back at the 1800s. Which is, you know, if someone were really studying the macroeconomical effects on that, yeah. it means revolution. Yes, it does. Ultimately, that's what it means. This is the French revolution. We've yes. done it, been there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's the social revolution, so, uh, socialist revolution in Sweden, mm -hmm. if you, if you want to go more closer to Sweden. Yeah, exactly. And the numbers in the data of the inequality is getting close to those numbers where the spark is all we need. Yeah, exactly. And that's especially in the US. Yes. It's not as dramatic here in, in no. Europe. True. Luckily. Um, it's funny how, you know, people with a strong economic, you know, background and knowledge can phrase things about data and AI in, in a way that perhaps tech people like myself and others cannot. And this I'm, is the AI divide. <laughs> no, this is the AI divide. <laughs> That's another type of AI divide. <laughs> but no. I'm thinking about another person that I usually actually speak about when I try to speak about AI, and he's called Aya Agreval. I'm not sure if you know him, but he was an author of a book called uh, Prediction Machine. Mm -hmm. And he tried, to, he, he was a professor in economy, uh, economy and, and then it turned into AI, you know, in recent years. But he tried to compare the revolution of AI to other big like disruptions that happened in the past. So he compared AI to the internet and to the transistor. And, mm -hmm. and we spoke about the computer and the transistor led to the computer that we all have. And this would be fun to hear or hear if you agree with, but to, to keep it short, I see the time is flying away, but he basically said, you know, uh, we had one, we had one, one big revolution uh, in the 1950s ish with a computer and a transistor that led to the jobs we had at that time yeah. being a human computer was changed and a new type of jobs that we never seen before was created yeah. being a developer in some way. And then we had the internet that uh, that became popular really in the mid '90s with the web, etc. And then once again we could see a big change. And and he also said that what actually is causing the big disruption is a very simple thing for an economist, which is that the cost of something drastically drops. Yes, exactly. So for the computer it was the cost of computation. For the internet it was the cost of distributing information, information. Mm, or yeah. products and services. 
And once again, we could see the jobs we had that time changed and completely new type of jobs, web developers and whatnot was created. E-commerce. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he said now with AI, uh, which really became popular, not until like the mid 2010-ish, 15 plus, uh, had once again, you know, changed that the cost of something drastically dropped and that was making predictions. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, this will once again be a big disruption that will cause that you know, jobs that we have will change and new type of jobs being data laborer, who, who knows, <laughs> will be created. That sounds like a really boring job. Uh, yeah. We need <laughs> anyway, to have uh, uh, someone else. He, he actually claims that this disruption that AI will cause will be bigger than the internet and the transistor. Do you agree with that? I haven't thought about uh, that question specifically. Um, I'm not sure. It really depends on where you draw the line between AI and, uh, but yeah, predictions in general is, you do that everywhere, right? Uh, you do that with, uh, I remember a discussion uh, in, in the hallways of, of when I was working at uh, uh, risk management. Uh, two senior guys, uh, quants, uh, they were talking about uh, what kind of prediction algorithm can you use to predict what optimal wife you can get. <laughs> Oof, uh, yeah. And they actually, I mean, it was really interesting because uh, the, the algorithm was really, you need to date a few women. Uh, you need to have some sample to baseline your, your expectations. What can I get? Uh, what kind of uh, profile? And even if you do it unidimensional, uh, mm. that you just can set a, a number on, on a person, it still becomes a really, really complicated question. Now, if, if you can automate that and, and make predictions about anything in your life, mm. definitely it's going to have a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps it's time to, to also think about the... You know, IBM values that they spoke about, they had like three values, one being, you know, uh, that AI can augment intelligence yes. in, in humans. You can, you know, th they want the insights to provide to customers and, and they also want transparency and explainable predictions and whatnot. But if we just connect to that and say, you know, what is really the best way to use data and AI to serve society or companies like H&M? Do you believe it's mainly to augment humans or is it more to provide like autonomous services that work without humans? I, I've thought a lot about uh, questions along this line. And essentially, I, I think uh, in many cases, the, the discussion goes along the line that we're creating a new artificial life somehow. Mm. But we're not, right? Uh, we're still Not yet, alone. At least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but we're still alone on the planet, and we're trying to create this company for us. As far as we know, it could be a lot of aliens flying <laughs> around. But as far as we know, we're not. Still <laughs> <alone>. <laughs> no, I think we should be thinking about augmenting ourselves. Yes. Definitely, without a doubt. I think that's been the general consensus. I think of most people here that yeah. you know AI should be used as a more a decision support system than a. Mm an automated system by itself. But yeah. I, I want I want to circle back to when we're talking about this, you know, what happens when, when core capabilities happens um, with the few or whatever, and we're now talking about how, how big the disruption could be potentially. So if I try to close the knot on this uh, conversation, how do we want uh, AI to develop? How do we build, you know, what is, is it important that this becomes an inclusive topic? If it is disruptive, if we have the, these sort of financial, you know, segregation happening, 
you know, aren't we here also then to think carefully about how to create a society where more people are in on the run, a mm. ride, so to speak, or what was, where were, because I could sort of smell or sense a, a direction in, you know, you know, how to build an inclusive data and AI society with disruption around the corner. Do we really want the few to disrupt the many or yeah. do we want something, do we want to teach ourselves to disrupt ourselves, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. I, I just thinking about how uh, tech is, I mean, in many cases, I think that, that when we are in the middle of a technology and, and trying to understand how this should be democratized to everyone, we're, we're overdoing it. Uh, I think one, one of the best examples of how AI, I think, will work in the future is this uh, Excel ad in for GPT-3. <laughs> right. I mean, if if uh, if you just can access AI and you can use it for your own predictions, then that's good enough because Excel is the tech tool for most people. Right. Just being able to do calculations. Uh, it's, it's super good. So what you're saying is we don't we don't need to all be data scientists, but we basically need to make. AI abundant, so to speak, so and, and make its way into the everyday tools, so to speak. Yeah. And in this way, uh, uh, enable, amplify people in, you know, without almost knowing about it, that they're using AI. Yeah. Is infused, that what you're saying? Infused. Infused. Is, yeah. Infused is the word that I use. For infused. It. Yeah, definitely. So it needs to be everywhere um, it, and it needs to be easily accessible to everyone uh, that you can. And going back to the discussion about Amazon as well, if, if AI is infused for, for everyone to use, it's boring to use. You just need to add AI. Uh, then Amazon doesn't have an edge in that respect. But th this, this links back a little bit to Henrik Langen. Sorry, you mm -hmm. can, Henrik Langen said something quite important in, in, you know, key success factors around succeeding with AI adoption of algorithms. Mm, yeah. So he's working, he worked a, a lot with uh, AK2 Ventures and they, they built Mother Brain, mm. which is about uh, using AI to, to help, help a VC fund, right? And one of the key findings he thinks is that if you truly want to have adoption of AI, you need to build, bring the algorithm uh, seamlessly into the normal workflow of people. Yes. If, as long as you're trying to get an, someone to do their job here and then move over here to do your BI reporting, it won't really change behavior. No. So you need to seamlessly get AI into the normal workflow. And this co correlates very well with what you right now said. If this is going to be an inclusive part, it needs to be infused. Yeah. Exactly. So infused, and, and this is a learning on the micro level. If I want to succeed with AI in my company, the take up needs to be right there and right then in your normal, normal work, infuse. And on a macro level, infusion is the way to drive, you know, uh, inclusion. Yeah. Is that, a, you know, I'm trying to condense a couple of ideas here. Do you, do you? I totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, uh, that, that needs to be the way that we develop a system. If, if it becomes an extra burden to mm -hmm. use AI, uh, then it, you're, you're going to exclude some people. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I think that's uh, resonated a lot with what Google and everyone else is saying. You know, so many people are afraid about technology in that they don't, think they can handle other, you know, large menus somewhere in some kind of horrible interface that they can't navigate. But AI is really about re removing that, right? Yes. And, and making yes. the interface between the technical system and the humans much more natural. In more sense. seamless. Yeah. 
I like so. this uh, also uh, the, the people in, in UX. I mean, they're mm. talking about how do I remove things, right? How yeah, do I simplify. remove that click? Yeah. Uh, and the most beautiful app in Sweden is, uh, in my opinion, Swish. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The most simplest app seamless yeah. works yeah. In, in my daily life. With uh, face recognition. With face recognition. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I think we need I to think, wrap I up. I think this yeah. is a very good ending note because Infuse AI is the way to go on a micro level or on a macro level for a more inclusive AI society. Yes. Now, with that very nice ending as a, as a thought, um, the, the last ending questions I wanna, we want to ask you is, of course, uh, what's next in your life John, do you have anything exciting coming up privately or professionally? Uh, going out for dinner with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's really exciting. Are you, you going to cook something cool? <laughs> What's your master, well, what are you mastering this month? Yeah, uh, actually espresso. Espresso, uh, you're yeah. still on the espresso. I, 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 that was January, but it can always be uh, okay. <laughs> optimized. And what is your next uh, mastery or imp learn new skill to learn? Uh, something that I haven't really learned is uh, making my own BNA sauce. BNA sauce. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It, it always fails. It's yeah. I need to, to learn that one properly, but I can't do it every night, right? <laughs> so the next thing in my life is pan air. <laughs> Pizza's been there pizza. and now we have really good pizza at home. Yeah. I, I did, I need to, sorry. Hmm? I had a, I bought one of those uh, home uh, pizza ovens that, ah. that goes up to 400 degrees. I can Ooh. recommend that. It's a really little tiny oven okay. and I, you can do it with coal, but I did it with gas, but I can really do, I can, this is a Napolitan pizza style. Mm. This is a little bit the tech nerd yeah. <laughs> or the geek, you know, because I had to, how do you measure the temperature of 400 degrees? I had to buy one of those, <laughs> you know, anyway, that's if, if you're a little bit techy, geeky and food, Definitely. that's a little good fun. But then, but then you need to learn how to do the dough and everything. Yeah, exactly. This but is my that, tip. I have that one. Definitely. Uh, I've learned that one. Um, Do you have that one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then definitely. you can come home to me and ma make pizza because I'm, I don't know how to make the dough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Cool. And then maybe last question. Um, who would you like to see on this uh, podcast? Do you have any good ideas for who we should invite? That's a good question. Uh, I haven't thought uh, too much about it. Uh, definitely. Andrew Ng. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we have we have our shortlist with I think it's Elon Musk, uh, Alex Friedman, and Andre Ng, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Lecun, Benchio, and Hinton. Why not? Yeah. I think you could try uh, uh, someone who's not here in in uh, Sweden, uh, uh, Just Bloom, uh, who's who replaced Errol Kuhlmeister. Uh, yeah, Just Bloom. Yeah, uh, he's really good. Uh, he's he's a really nice guy as well. Yeah, he um, came in uh, like yeah this year, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Or uh, last year, late last, last year, year. Last yeah. year, yeah. that's right. Great. Mm -hmm. I think with that, uh, Bjorn, what an awesome conversation, and we and we didn't get to the Benish, from bayonets to Bayesian. No, that, yeah. exactly. That would, that, would be ah. a that would be the perfect segue from no. bayonets to Bayesian. <laughs> <laughs> because we were talk we were joking about the Jettebosch Schemt, Exactly. Uh, we did. We did. That would have been nice. But we take that after, after work. Let's do that. Okay, so thank you very much, Bjorn. Thank, thank you. you, Bjorn.